So good afternoon and welcome everybody. Um, it's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure and a personal pleasure to have uh, to introduce to you Dr. Bashir Abumane, uh, our speaker today. Uh, Dr. Abumane is currently a reader in postcolonial uh, literature in the School of English at the University of Kent. He took, as many of you know, his uh, DPhil from Oxford and his current research deals with uh, topics such as global English literature of the Middle East, literary realism and modernism, and uh, literary and cultural theory, Marxist, postcolonial, and I guess otherwise. Uh, his most recent book is uh, The Palestinian Novel from 1948 to the Present, published by Cambridge University Press. And the title of his talk today is Habibi's The Pesoptimist in 1948. Thank, Thank you, Yaakov. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Um, so I'll speak for around uh, 40 minutes, and yes, then we can, we can take some questions. So Emil Habibi was a leading Palestinian writer. He was a journalist. He was a politician. He was a member of uh, uh, Knesset for the Communist Party for around 20 years. Weeks before he died, he said the following. He said, I write only when I'm shaken, shaken to my core. And my way of crying is through the ink that comes out of the pen. I want to propose several things today. That Habibi is here referring to the Nakba. That the Nakba is the key structuring event in his literature. That he writes to return to it, to register and mourn it, and to ruminate on its memory and its ongoing effects. That he reads the Nakba not only as a site of mass defeat, but as one of individual collapse, of subordination, and crucially of anxieties of capture and collaboration, that he also reads it as a site of future resistance, that he identifies it as the underlying cause of his intolerable living, of what he describes as the qati'ah, the severance, from everything he holds dear, that finally the Nakba generates the aesthetic fantasy that enables the struggle against political defeat, and enables also self-determining agency. These are conceived in literary rather than political terms. It is the freedom to imagine and to write your own self that is sanctified and advocated. Nothing outside of that act can be trusted. This is ultimately Habibi's literary project. If Habibi spent m most of his political life trying to attenuate, to rectify, or to overcome the Nakba, calling, for example, for Palestinian rights, recognition, self-determination against conquest and occupation. It is in literature where he dwells on defeat, where he dwells on mourning, where he dwells on the everlasting pain of national and also, for him, familial severance, raising the specter that his political hopes won't materialize. Here, there is neither collective freedom nor a clear political mechanism advocated or posited to overcome the Nakba. If politics for Habibi was about struggle and about optimism, literature was about weakness and it was also about the dearth of prospects for change and transformation. Such complex amalgamations, the optimism, capture Habibi's contradictory imperatives, both struggling against reality and also submitting to it, both realist and otherworldly, both present and disappeared, both captured and escaped. So as Habibi's main literary testimony, the Pesoptimist, shows, it is because of 1948 and of Israel's deepening 
settler colonial victory that Habibi ultimately sees no possibility for worldly salvation for his imagined Palestinian protagonist in the novel goes by the name of Said. At the end of the novel, he leaves Said sitting on a stake waiting essentially for extraterrestrial salvation. So you have a portrait of an unresisting character, if ever there was one. Could Said writing the story of his life and disappearance change his fate? That becomes the question motivating the novel. So that is the Nakba condition that Habibi describes in The Psoptimist, his most important literary work, which was published in 1974. So to give you a sense of how he writes the Nakba there, I would like to read out a deeply consequential moment in the novel. It's not only a great example of Habibi's literary realism in The Psoptimist, in which I can describe as individual destiny typifies historical collective change, but it is also a moment that embodies the whole narrative structure of the novel, loss, human weakness and the tragedy of expulsion here combined with the sadness of staying and also the sadness of being dominated. The short part I want to read is from the ironically titled How Said First Participated in the War of Independence, not the Nakba, that's the title. It tells of Said as he's being driven back from the north to Haifa by his father's military contact and how the jeep, this is the, the setting for the scene, suddenly stops on the edge of Acre. So as the Jewish driver, and I'll start to quote, jumped from it like a shot, gun in hand, he raced into the sesame stalks, parting them with his sponge. I saw a peasant woman, the narrator says, crouching down there, in her lap a child, his eyes wide in terror. From which village, demanded the governor. The mother remained crouching, staring at him askance, although he stood right over her, huge as a mountain. From Birwi, he yelled, she made no response, but continued to stare at him. He then pointed his gun straight at the child's head and screamed, Reply, or I'll empty this into him. At this I tensed, the narrator says, ready to spring at him, come what may. After all, the blood of youth surged hot within me at my age, then of 24. And not even a stone could have been unmoved at this sight. However, I recalled my father's final counsel and my mother's blessing and then said to myself, I certainly shall attack him if he fires his gun. But so far, he is merely threatening her. I remained at ready. The woman did reply, yes, from Birwi. Are you returning there? He demanded. Yes, returning. Didn't we warn you, he yelled, that anyone returning there will be killed? Don't you all understand the meaning of discipline? Do you think it's the same as chaos? Get up and run ahead of me. Go back anywhere you like to the east, and if I ever see you again on this road, I'll show you no mercy. The woman stood up, and gripping her child by the hand set off towards the east, not once looking back. Her child walked beside her, and he too never looked back. At this point, and this is Habibi's interpretation of the event, the narrator, with, through the narrator's voice, he says, at this point I observed the first example of that amazing phenomena, that was to occur again and again until I finally met my friends from outer space. For the further the woman and child went from where we were, the governor and I standing, uh, and I standing in the jeep, the taller they grew. By the time they emerged <coughs> with their own shadows in the sinking sun, they had become bigger than the plain of Acre itself. The governor st still stood there awaiting their final disappearance while I remained huddled in the jeep. Finally, he asked in amazement, will they ever disappear? 
The question, however, was not directed at me. Habibi later adds in the same uh, chapter, Birwi is the village of the poet, of course, Mahmoud Darwish, who said 15 years later, I lord the executioner, victor over a dark-eyed maiden, hurrah for the vanquisher of villages, hurrah for the butcher of infants. Was he this very child? The narrator asks. Had he gone on walking eastward after releasing himself from his mother's hand, leaving her in the shadows? By this I end this long <coughs> episode in the novel. So I want to flag three issues about this encounter, essentially between a colonial official and a dispossessed re refugee. First, the position of the narrator. Second, this idea, this notion that Palestinian history is seen here as refugee history, as a refugee story. And third, the last thing, that literature resists historical injury. So I'll begin with the first one. <clears throat> so first, on Said's behavior and position. It is, there's no other words to describe it. Is it, it is cowardly, it is complicit, and it is also contrary to the peasant's own displacement. She's being pushed out as he's making his way back in. He does nothing to help her, remains silent, witnesses essentially her expulsion, and thus acts on the side of her executioner. Crucially, and this becomes very important historically, Saeed is Habibi himself. Nearly 40 years after writing this incident in The Psoptimist, he confirmed its historical ac accuracy in a documentary that Dalia Karpel made about his life just a couple of weeks before he died. This incident did indeed take place. He was the one riding next to the military governor, and he did nothing to stop the expulsion. In the documentary, he says, that too happened. These are his words. Why was Habibi so paralyzed? And his answer in the documentary is, out of political responsibility. These are his words. He reasoned. And then he says, ba, tuz. But what is this consequential responsibility that Habibi is referring to? What could motivate a communist committed to human emancipation to do absolutely nothing to alleviate such stark individual human suffering. It's impossible to understand either the historical weight of this episode or Habibi's guilt without briefly reviewing the history of the Communist Party in Palestine. For Habibi to recall this episode in the weeks before he died shows that it is tied up with his own sense of political legacy. He belonged to a communist party that has spent most of its time since the Palestinian rebellion of 1936-39 totally committed to the Arab national movement and fully in support of the rebellion. These are the words of Musa Buderi, the communist party historian. Because it saw anti-imperialism as the core axis of Palestinian politics, then it actively participated in a popular front coalition with Palestinian nationalists, and as a result of this, it de-emphasized class struggle and social revolution. Indeed, national contradictions between Jews and, and Arabs were so severe that they led to the CP splitting on national lines in 1943. For Habibi and his comrades, there was no way of reconciling an essentially colonial and ruling nationality and a national liberation struggles. Again, these are the words of Radwan al-Hilu, the Soviet-appointed Communist Party secretary. Habibi's tragedy then can be summed up as follows. <clears throat> An anti-imperialist Arab communist ended up accepting and justifying the imperialist partition of a homeland he had earlier sought to liberate. He did so because he followed the Soviet Union, and that's very important, as a reason, and he also accepted that the results of the Nakba meant national defeat. Indeed, all Arab communist parties acting as Soviet foreign policy satellites were forced to accept the partition. 
Because it became indelibly tainted with outside interference and ideological complicity with Jewish statehood, Arab communism suffered for years to come as a result of this uh, enforced decision, certainly until the Soviet rapprochement um, with Arab nationalism in the late 50s. So for Palestinians, partition was not only treacherous, but violated the right of self-government and the right of self-determination. That is why Habibi was nearly killed in Ramallah for accepting it and had to flee to Lebanon as a result. So as if subservience to Soviet foreign policy uh, objectives was not enough, the 1948 war intensified communist Arab-Jewish antagonism within the party and had lasting effects. While Arab communists mobilized to protect Palestinians from the engulfing catastrophe, prominent Jewish communists, leaders like Mikonis, actively supported the Haganah forces and helped them in procuring arms from the communist bloc, tipping the war essentially in their favor. Another prominent Jewish communist leader, Mayor Vilner, signed the Israeli Declaration of Independence on behalf of the Communist Party as the expulsions were essentially of Palestinians were taking place around him. What must Palestinian communists have felt and thought when after the Nakba they were forced back under the organizational and the political hegemony of those who supported the state's violent objectives during the Nakba? Habibi's sense of guilt and responsibility can therefore only be understood in this context of national collapse and overpowering social political disintegration. The scars and the injuries of 47-49 would mark Habibi until the end of his life. This is of course not to deny the role that the Communist Party played in the 1950s and the 1960s in the struggle against Israel's military government. Communists were at the forefront of political challenge to the state and demanded full rights and equality for Palestinians in Israel. They also played a key role in exposing state crimes like the Kufr Qasim massacre of 49 Palestinian citizens in 1956. It is also not to argue, as nationalists now do, that Arab communists collaborated with Israel. To believe that is not only to misconstrue and to falsify the, their overall contribution to Palestinian society in Israel, it is also to ignore how active they were in fighting against Israel's regime of collaboration, the regime of surveillance, and the regime of control. Adapting to circumstances one cannot change is quite distinct from actively collaborating with an occupying regime. This is confirmed by Hillel Cohen's work, and I'll refer to his book, Good Arabs, the Israeli Security Agencies and the Israeli Arabs, from 1948 to 1967. I'm just going to make one quote from the book in order to... Um, um, support what I'm arguing about the communists. The communists, he says, organized mass demonstrations, urged internal refugees to return to their villages without permits, and conducted other protest activities, some under the banner of Jewish-Arab partnership. The Israeli establishment thus viewed them as a clear and present, pres present danger to the state. The communists also attacked collaborators, voicelessly and constantly tried to shame them and publicly publicly coining terms like government tales, Adnab Hukumi, which quickly became very popular. Indeed, if in the confusing circumstances that followed 1948, he continues uh, the 48 war, many Arabs chose to collaborate, the communists offered a nationalist alternative, although a complex one that recognized Jewish national aspirations and the right of Israel to exist within restricted borders. End of quote from Hillel Cohen. So there's no question that Arab communists did fortify Palestinian resistance to Israel and did actively oppose its unjust and discriminatory state policies, including land expropriation. Israel barely tolerated the Communist Party and Ben-Gurion wanted to ban it. 
it was always hounded, it was always spied on, it was always politically restricted. The Pesoptimist should be read, I think, in this context of struggle and forced compromise, political strains that haunted Habibi. But one particular fact that is key to understanding this episode I quoted before is that Saeed is no communist adapting to the new reality of a colonial Israel. He is a straight-up collaborator who comes from a family of collaborators. This is the way he's depicted in the novel. This is a very harsh judgment by Habibi that Saeed saves his own skin while people around him suffer banishment and exile. But the depiction is also deceptive since it tars ordinary Palestinians who remained with the brush of collaboration when the actual historical event was about Habibi himself. Ultimately, the weight of an overbearing Nakba prevails and 1948 produces a deep sense of human failure in Habibi for witnessing it, importantly, and also for being protected from it. He returns only to see more expelled. So I'll say two more things that are worth emphasizing about the episode. Said resists what he witnesses by describing it in a certain way, in a very particular way. As refugee mother and child leave and head eastwards, their figures slowly tower. It's a very beautiful image. They tower over the landscape around them. If expulsion eliminates physical presence, it also enhances its figurative and its symbolic dimensions. Shadows will continue to hover over an emptied land until they can return. That is why refugee absence only grows in his consciousness, haunts and shadows his every move. This is Habibi's way of minimizing qati'ah, the qati'ah of expulsion, the severance of expulsion, the fact that families, that villages, cities, communities were torn asunder by Israel. It also conveys the centrality of 1948 in Palestinian history. Will the refugees also haunt the Israeli military governor who asks if they will ever disappear? Will the excluded surface for him as well? There's no suggestion in the novel that the perpetrators of the Nakba feel any remorse or compassion for their victims. Why would a leader, that becomes a question, in a binational communist party whose daily life is filled with encounters and discussions and friendships with Israeli Jews never depict an ordinary Israeli in the novel? In fact, none of Habibi's Jewish figures in the novel are independents, as it were. They're all, including his Mizrahi handler, repressive state agents. Why? especially when Kanafani manages to humanize Miriam Koshin in his novel Returning to Haifa and to draw out her suffering as a Holocaust survivor and also to draw out her human motivations for staying, not her Zionist motivations, her human motivations for staying. And also when Mahmoud Darwish writes love poetry to his Jewish lover Rita. Why then does Habibi stay silent on this score? It is hard to answer this question, I think, with any certainty. Habibi was a disciplined political being and his onerous uh, public life of representing an oppressed and suffering population mattered most to him. So he couldn't afford Darwish's liberties. He also had a particular way of thinking about his own imaginative work in relation to his political commitments. Politics and literature, where he would famously reiterate in his journalism what he described as the two watermelons he carried, two burdens, but also two different and separate entities and activities, literature, was his freedom from political constraint, his personal truth. Literature doesn't lie, he tells Dalia Karpel. These are his words in the documentary. If his political world was suffused with Israelis, 
He wanted his literary world to speak to his Nakba pain and to his Nakba injury. Again, as the initial quote, as a form of crying, writing as a way to revisit the scars and the wounds and to remember who inflicted them, to expect that everyday encounters with Israelis would rectify or would attenuate this is to misconstrue the ongoing nature of the injustice of Palestinian exile and Palestinian dispossession. This, points, this point uh, about the specificity of the literary for Habibi brings me to my third comment on the expansion sequence I quoted earlier. So thirdly, 48 in Habibi's description generates a literary response, and this is crucial for his novel. Here as well, the symbolic resists the real. By asking whether the child in the encounter is Mahmoud Darwish, Habibi draws a direct link between expulsion and poetry. If the act of expulsion silenced Said, the character, it doesn't silence the child. A new generation will fight with words and resist Israel's crimes. Ghassan Kanafani would dub this generation 48 Palestinians, uh, uh, 48 generation resistance poets, resistance writers, those who under conditions of cultural and political siege, siege this, these are the Kanafani's terms, managed to forge an emancipatory culture, a humanist culture, against oppression and against national negation. So the emphasis on literary voice and speech is key in the novel. I would go, I would go even further. If anything, this is Habib's literary legacy. To live the contradictions of Palestinian communism in Israel is to produce a distinctly haunted literary voice. It's a voice that holds up self-authoring as a placeholder for the core values of self-determination and self-emancipation in the spirit of Samih al-Qasim's poem that Habibi quotes at the beginning of the novel, urging Palestinians, I'm not going to quote the whole um, poem, to, uh, not to wait, and in the words of the poem, and to yourself compose, he tells them, you should to yourself compose those letters you anticipate. But Habibi buys such literary imaginative freedom at a cost. And this is what I want to emphasize in what follows. Having outlined why I think 1948 is key to understanding the Pesoptimist, I want to focus now on why Habibi opts to leave Said on a stake at the end of the novel. Why is fantasy and writing the only option left at the end? As the Mahdi creature tells Said, this is the creature from outer space that Said appeals to all the time, the creature tells him, this is the way you always are. When you, have no lo when you can no longer endure your misery, he tells him, you cannot, yet you cannot bear to pay the high price you know is needed to change it, you come to me for help. But I see what other people do and the price they pay, allowing no one to squeeze them into one of these tunnels, he tells him. And then I become furious with you. What is it you lack? Is any one of you lacking a life he can offer or lacking a death to make him fear for his life? End of quote. So to leave Said on a stake, Habibi has to reject other options and other political possibilities. So what does Habibi sideline in order to end up with literary fantasy and to end up with imagination as the main effect? There are two core rejections, and I'll, I'll, I'll just go through them quickly, that are key. As I alluded to earlier, he rejects any form of political organization, for example, that the communists were undertaking at the time. As he's sitting on a stake, Said looks down to see a boy selling Littihad newspaper and wonders at where the communists find the energy to fight. Said can't. Such self-sacrifice doesn't appeal to him. Said also rejects, and this is another important rejection, uh, 
uh, another form of sacrifice, the option of armed resistance that was politically all the rage when Habibi wrote the novel. So in another key episode in the novel, there's a clash of ideologies between the passivity, the silence that Saeed emblematizes, and armed response. And that's rehearsed in Saeed's encounter with his son, Wala, which means loyalty in Arabic. Wala is his son from his second wife, Baqiya, the one who remained after his first wife in the novel, Yuad, was violently expelled. So the dialogue I'm referring to is essentially, is fundamentally about the distinct life form of, Pal of 48 Palestinians, those who, in a sense, by historical fluke, remained in what became Israel. I'm just going to outline the main part here, just to give you a sense of what options that, um, that, that Habibi has to reject in order to keep Said on the stake at the end. So shocked by his parents' silent and silence-inducing life, Wala rebels in the novel. As he's surrounded by police under Tantura Beach, which is, of course, very important as a depopulated and destroyed village in 1948, and, but also as a site of massacre, uh, Habibi sets this scene there. Wala has an exchange with his mother, Baqiya. Said had brought Baqiya to the beach so he, she, so he can convince Wala to surrender. Her decision instead to join Wala and his fellow vanguard revolutionaries is beautifully and sadly evoked by Habibi. So rather than helping Wala come out of the cave, she actively joins him and they disappear, joining armed struggle with others. So by the end, again, Said is left behind. He's alone. Both his wife and his son leave him to join the Palestinian resistance movement. And this is the exchange. He tells his mother, these are direct quotes, he says, I'm not hiding, mother. I've taken up arms only because I got sick and tired of your hiding. Suffocated, he says, it was to liberate, it was to breathe free that I came to the cellar, to breathe in freedom just once. In my cradle, he tells her, you stifled me, you stifled my crying. As I grew and tried to learn how to talk uh, um, from what you said, I heard only whispers. As I went to school, you warned me, careful what you say. When I told you my teacher was my friend, you whispered, he may be spying on you. One morning you told me, mother, you talk in your sleep. Careful what you say in your sleep. His mother cried out, a way out? How? Death is no way out, she tells him, merely an end. There's no shame in how we live, she says. If we are secretive, it's only in hope of deliverance. If we're careful, it's only to protect all of you. Where's the shame in you coming out to us, well, to your father and mother? Alone, you have power over nothing. This is the end of this episode. So if the time for collective regeneration hasn't come yet, then Wala's vanguardist armed struggle will always have its advocates. Habibi is not tempted by it, though, and this is important in the novel. However attractive its lure was from the mid-1960s onwards, unlike Jabra Ibrahim Jabra, a diasporic writer from Bethlehem originally, his fida'i heroes are celebrated in his novels, that kind of self-sacrifice never appealed to Habibi. It's also, it also incidentally didn't appeal to Sahar Khalifi, who critiques the PLO in her novel Wild Thorns and critiques armed struggle as a mechanism of overcoming the Palestinian Nakba and occupation. For the occupied armed struggle against a militarily vastly superior state seemed futile and self-destructive. Time, Baqiya argues, may yet bring collective change. In the meantime, she tells her son, until, we're, until they are ready, these are her words, Habibi leaves Said open to accusations of submission and subservience, and also accusations of silence. 
Wala tells his mother at the end of this episode, then why doesn't he speak? Her mother replies, he's not very good with words. Habibi's strategy in the Pesoptimist is to be good with words. It is to show that if political reality is marked by defeat, by compromise, by subservience, by complicit history, etc., then literary words can provide the necessary margin of freedom. It is clear from the novel that such a cultural strategy has the benefits of ruminating on injury, exposing injustice, and telling the truth about history. That is why the novel ends with a rumination on the importance of truth, this is the last chapter, and history, historical consciousness. The novel also shows that not only political resistance, but even collaboration is not an option for Said. There's a very funny scene in the novel um, when Said raises, after 1967, he hears on the radio that all Palestinians should raise the white flag. And of course, the radio is referring to the Palestinians occupied in 1967 areas in the West Bank and Gaza. But Said, who's sitting in Haifa, mm -hmm. sees himself as part of this community, and he also raises the white flag. And they arrest him for, for implying that this is occupied land, you know, that this is, this, his act of submission becomes, in a sense, in the novel, an act of resistance, right? So, again, collaboration, even if you're a very good collaborator, is not an option in the novel, right? The strategy that Habibi ends up advocating does have serious limitations. It advocates a literary resolution to real-world problems of history. It also ironically praises, as it does that, the Oriental imagination, he says, as a mechanism of survival and coping under Israel's arrogant um, colonial domination. Imagination and invention are the only values left standing at the end, unsullied by reality. Considering the brutality of Palestinian existence under Israel, there's something deeply unsatisfactory about this. Invoking the imagination is, of course, heartwarming literary stuff. It warms the hearts of all literature people. When you say imagination will solve everything, it is the ultimate hope. And there are moments when I'm much more generous than what's coming next <laughs> about Habibi, when I read this cultural gesture more positively as an opening to the future, as an anticipation of political self-determination, etc. But what is troubling is Habibi's active preclusion and reduction of other existing options. People can't live by culture alone, especially not oppressed peoples. Hope is about formulating political projects and strategies for emancipation. However magnificent Habibi's imaginings are, the reality of Palestinian existence means that his literary escape cannot just be read as a form of freedom. It has to be evaluated and it has to be critiqued. If Habibi's Stalinist politics were not the answer to the Nakba, should that preclude other forms of politics from informing mass sentiment? Maybe Habibi himself is here refusing to draw political lessons from his own aesthetic practice and to say that self-writing means democratic self-making and that Palestinians need a more self-organized form of politics than the CP at the time could provide. Whatever the answer, the problem is clear. Palestinian social and political life has been constitutively marked, if not irreparably devastated, by the Nakba. It is this reality that Habibi articulates in the novel. Like no one else in the annals of Palestinian fiction, Habibi takes us back to the point of national destruction and forces us to reckon with the costs of defeat. He inserts himself into mass tragedy and reveals by doing so his own wounds and his own scars. A profound sense of loss and disjuncture emanates from this Palestinian national and individual fracture. As Palestine is usurped, dispossessed, lost, 
ruled over, and then lived in, Habibi experiences his own reduction to an alien in his own homeland, a severed remnant left behind to witness the daily humiliations of a settler colonial dispensability that is governed by the exclusions, by the dominations, and by the violence of Jewish statehood. Habibi's account is about experiencing how a dispossessing state actively rules over you, but doesn't belong to you. It belongs uh, to and is claimed by someone else elsewhere. What remains is the impossibility of Palestinian existence under such harsh conditions. With an increasingly dire political situations, situation and no prospects for betterment in the near future, maybe Habibi's metaphoric stake rings more true today than it did in 1974. I prefer to read it as a warning rather than as a reality. Every day Palestinians show that sitting on a stake is not an option, that they will continue to fight for justice and for freedom. If 70 years to the Nakba has taught us anything, it is that Palestinians will never give up until they achieve justice and independence. Habibi's stake is a fantasy, in a sense they cannot afford. Neither in reality could he. So I'd like to end with some thoughts on whether there are implications for Israel studies from working on Habibi. Habibi is usually read in his Palestinian register, and the implications of his work for Israel are not a main focus of concern. So it might be worth asking, then at the end, the following question. What does Habibi offer the academic study of Israel? I think the simple answer is the Nakba. There's no way of understanding Israel without understanding what Weizmann called standing over Haifa, that miraculous clearing of the land, without tackling its foundational act of dispossessing the majority of Palestinians, what this act tells us about the nature of Israel itself, and also what it tells us about Israel's ongoing colonial practices. There's no way of understanding Israel without therefore appreciating, as critical sociologists like Gershon Shafir and Baruch Kimmering have argued, the constitutive nature of colonization and colonial conflict for Israel as an entity. These following processes and practices, for example, are not only historical, but they are ongoing. Jewish conquest of land and labor, historical, ongoing. Pioneering and settlement, historical and ongoing. Historical biblical rights as justification, the same, and the construction of what uh, political sociologist Avishai Ehrlich calls a permanent war society. That too is ongoing, of course. Colonialism is thus a crucial determinant of state formation and also of nation building, and continues to govern the allocation of power, of rights and privileges in Israel-Palestine to this day. From such a perspective, the Nakba is an ongoing event. The 1967 occupation doesn't only have a more violent prequel in this regard, but should be read as part of an ongoing process of colonization that began much earlier than that. It's also worth adding that none of these questions have necessarily to do with politics. One can, for example, study the Nakba, like Benny Morris did, and conclude that we need more expulsion today. Knowledge is clearly not a safeguard against dehumanizing practices. But I believe that Morris is politically in the extreme minority, and that given a chance, ordinary Israelis would respond differently to, to learning about the history of the Nakba. It's a wager I'm happy to take, actually. Why else would Israel spend so much time repressing and denying the Nakba, 
sealing off most of the archives about 1948, disappearing the Palestinians from history, if it didn't think that knowledge and public debate would change people's attitudes and perceptions. Reckoning with the Nakba is reckoning with both historical truth and also present-day reality. Without it, Israelis who live on such a large dose of historical denial can never achieve self-understanding and they can also never be free. They would remain shackled to fears, anxieties and the moral distortions of oppressing others and they would never be able to reconcile with their enemies. Reconciliation goes through the Nakba. That's what Habibi has to offer. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Is it okay if we keep on uh, recording? Anyone has an objection when you... Okay. So let's open for discussion. Well, so. I just have a question, I guess, which is more about the um, background to the publication of the book. Um, I mean, obviously I read it when I was in graduate school. Um, but if it came out in 1974, was he writing it between 67 and 73? Yeah. Or he wrote it immediately after the 73 war? Or when, when was he writing it and sort of what was the journey to publication? Because he's obviously writing about one episode, but living through a very different episode. Yes. So that's what's intriguing about Habibi. Uh, Habibi was, was writing fiction, short stories, in the, 30s, in the 40s, before the Nakba. And then after the Nakba, there's total silence. So he begins writing again fiction, not journalism, not political uh, uh, writings in a sense, fiction, immediately, just before and immediately after 1967. And he publishes his first collection of short stories to the Seattle A.M. Sitta, Sextet of the Six Days, immediately as a result of 1967. So what 1967 does for him as a writer, and also does for many Palestinians, is it opens up the floodgates of 1948 again. So he remembers the events of 1948, and, and he also begins to write about them fictively, and begins to connect with 1948, and begins to connect with the West Bank and Gaza, and with Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. He has a very n nice quip where he says, the Palestinians and, and us, the occupied Palestinians and us, are now united under one prison roof. Right? So that, there's something about that moment, which you can also see in Kanafani, for example. Right? Kanafani writes in his novel, Returning to Haifa, remembers uh, 1948, which opens like a floodgate into his writing immediately after 1967. So there is that national moment that Habibi comes to epitomize in, in The Psoptimist. And he begins writing the novel and it's published uh, 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 in Littihad in parts, and then it's published uh, as, as one volume in 1974. So The Psoptimist, Sextet of the Sixties, are of that moment, of that very crucial I would say, conjuncture in Palestinian politics after 1967. And before, you know, you can, there are various ways of describing this politically. Before um, the, the political closure of the Arab revo Revolution, the Palestinian Revolution, beginning in the, in the 70s in Black September, but also ultimately after the, the October War, when you have a completely different political moment. So that's the most fertile cultural and political moment for Palestinians, in a sense, from 67 on. The irony of it is, it's an outcome of occupation. Right? That becomes the irony of it all. But that's when he returns to 48. And I think it's also interesting as sort of a fully formed, I mean, I, I assume it was already completed entirely by, by the 73 war. So yes. there's no sort of influence of that moment on. And so it's really sort of a 67 to 73 moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it, it, it has those 
memories of 48, uh, ruminating on 48, uh, everything essentially, I think Habibi in his world, in his own imagining, if, if it's possible to make that claim, I think writing for Habibi is 48. There's nothing else which is more important than, for him than 48. He is totally haunted by ghosts, by specters, by feelings that are connected to... And he uses fiction writing, mm -hmm. unlike political writing, where he would argue with his enemies. And you know, he's a very sharp pen. He's also a journalistic hack. You know, there's no... You, you don't want to fuck with Habibi politically, right? So, you know, politically, he, was, he could be vicious. But in his literature, he kept it open for that space because so much pain, so many scars so much a sense of individual complicity, um, silence, etc. So he does something else in the literary side of things, I think, where, where what I tried to lay out. You seem to suggest, though, that he maybe was something less of a literary talent than some than Jawish or Tanafani. Not at all. he was unable to sort of rid himself of some of his political shackles, or it's just this is a constraint that we should acknowledge as part no. of his literature and... You know, let that be. It's not a constraint. It's uh, totally not a constraint. It's the way he conceived of those activities. I think Habibi, as, as a literary figure, <laughs> I think you can rate him very highly amongst the Palestinians. So I don't want to start comparing, him, especially because Yaakov is recording. <laughs> but you know, there's something about the, the, the problems and the contradictions that Habibi embodies, which gives you amazing literature. Right. Where, and that's where he lives because he's so tortured and troubled and conflicted. Right, the kind of literature he produces, I think, is incredible. It's unrivaled, um, and it's not only important in a small context for Palestinians in, in in Israel or for the Palestinians in the West Bank or for Palestinians in general. It's also important for the Arab world. Habibi is a significant presence in the Arab world. So I think, on some level, the Pisoptimist as a literary text is unrivaled. So I, I wouldn't, I think those divisions have been, you know, have served, him, have served him very well. He knew how to function with the constraints of, 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 of very repressive politics and extreme allegiance to Soviet policy for the longest time, which enforced the partition on him as a political position. And at the same time to give himself a, a space to breathe where you get all those things that, that you couldn't simply tuck them in under his politics. And that's what makes him such an interesting and and on some level, contradictory figure. So uh, I have, a, I guess, a, a comment and maybe two questions. The comment is regarding, uh, I, I find your last uh, uh, reference to why, uh, what is the re relevance for this Israel study is somewhat perplexing because I never thought it's not relevant to Israeli mm. study. I mean, the study of Israel must include everything that falls under Israeli society, Israeli culture, Israeli. Mm. Stated also, and this is all part of it. I mean, sure. Division of power. I mean, uh, but this is just by way of uh, you know a curious uh, perspective difference between us, I guess. Uh, so my, uh, my, I have one question regarding Habibi and one question regarding your position in a sense. When it comes to uh, your critique of Habibi, would you be willing to accept that? At least a, uh, an important merit of his work is that by writing fiction, he has helped to keep the memory of 48 alive. Mm -hmm. as, as you describe, I mean, there's an ongoing uh, campaign to uh, either repress or silence it, and mm -hmm. he found uh, a very uh, successful way of keeping it uh, alive. So, in this, I mean, would you give him 
credit for this, although you know he does it in that very peculiar way that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and regarding Habibi himself, did he offer uh, an alternative to uh, Palestinian nationalism as a viable program for political identification among the 48 Palestinians? Um, so I'm glad you say that about Israel studies. This is very good news for me, <laughs> that Israel studies is, is deeply preoccupied with questions of of, of foundational expulsion and, and, and the creation of Israel. You know, I, my encounters have been less uh, <laughs> less optimistic than that, but you know, I'll, I'll take your word for it. You know, I'm, I'm delighted about that. Um, so the question about, let's begin with the last question about whether he constituted an alternative. I think, I think Habibi is, is, on, is a Palestinian nationalist. His nationalism is mediated through the peculiarities of his Stalinism. But I think what which forced him to take positions which he you could argue willingly took, or you know, he was just he was a party apparatchik, he was forced to take those, those you couldn't not take those positions if you wanted to stay in the Communist Party. Of uh, recognizing Israel, recognizing the partition, uh, operating within those parameters, advocating for uh, um, certain positions which jar with, with other forms of Palestinian nationalism. You know, so it, it had this problem. I don't think he constitutes an alternative. I think he, he was just, um, uh, on some level, um, a, a Palestinian uh, two-stater. Right? Um, so you, can, you could discuss somebody who arguably had political illusions about possibilities of peace, who welcomed Oslo because he felt Oslo was the moment that Israel recognized the Palestinians and you could build on that and move forward. That is proved to be a total failure. Even critics saw that at the beginning of Oslo. So, you know, it, it, was, imp- it was necessary for him to believe mm-hmm. that, that Israel wanted, was interested in creating a state in the, in the West Bank and Gaza in reality. Because this is this justifies his ideology and justifies his own position, that you know you have a state for Israelis and then you have a state for for the Palestinians, and this was the logic of partition. So it justified his own position, it justified his own style. I don't think, in that sense, you know, he, he he's he presents an alternative. I think, on some level, politically, amongst Palestinians in Israel, that was, if you want to put it in those terms, that was a Palestinian mainstream. Right? That not, we have one state now. The job of people who are actively political. Or, or political formations within 48 Palestinians is now to make sure that you pressure Israel, you advocate for the creation of the other state, right? Because you already have that one state. You also, of course, advocated the right of return, you know, uh, uh, etc. But you know, essentially, that became his position. Um, so I, I don't think he presents that kind of uh, an alternative. In fact, there are many troubling things about his personal histories, political history that come out of. You know, essentially, what you, when you think about the Communist Party, you have to you have to put it in a in a, in a historical context. Those were a very small group of people. Uh, most of the ones who didn't want partition split off, ended up being isolated. The ones who c- accepted partition and carried carried it through were a small group of people, small couple of people essentially, that it, were given this whole weight of trying to tackle the Palestinian-Israeli question. So I don't think their shoulders bear that much weight. Right? So I don't think, you know, I don't think the problem of either the two-state solution or Israeli policies lies with anything that has to do with the communists. I think the communists is essentially mostly a sideshow, right? 
you're into it's a kind of an anthropological exercise that's only interesting for those who are interested in the politics of 48 Palestinians, not more, not more than. So I don't think you can put a lot of weight on, on their position as such. Your second question, I forgot. Remind me again. Did uh, do you see the book is offering an, a, a way of talking about the Nakba? Yeah, totally. I think I. So what I want to argue about the postoptimist is that it is essentially a Nakba book that you cannot understand the novel without understanding how deeply marked by the Nakba is, not only the way the novel is written, not only the structure of the novel, but the events of the novel, the, the relationship between historical, the historical real and the introduction of otherworldly creatures, why otherworldly creatures come because of the pressures of the real, they become intolerable, he has to find salvation from outside. All those things are essentially about and, the Nakba. And my question is, is would you consider this to be a political act of totally. fighting against the, yeah. the science? Totally. Of yeah, of course. Yes. But, you know, I don't think Habibi was thinking, I'm going to write a novel which ultimately Israeli society will read. No, Habibi no. was thinking that I, I cannot, because he was so, um, what's the word, constricted by his political affiliations, right, which meant that you couldn't dwell on the Nakba so much because what you needed to do was to create that other state, right? Because this is what's going to resolve the conflict as a two-state solution. So there was an element in which politically he couldn't dwell so much on, on the Nakba, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that became a release for him. So the, the notion that, you know, he made a comment once that, and I think it's, it's correct, that you know, communists shouldn't be happy with the post-optimist. I think there's something there because he's not writing as a communist, yeah. right? He, he, it, this is not a party line. That's why what what's make, makes the novel so interesting, that it's not a party line. You can accuse some other Palestinian writers of towing party lines, and some of them are unmemorable, right? Whether they advocate uh, different positions, they just write literature in order to advocate those positions, etc. But Habib is not one of those uh, figures, and that's what's, what makes him so interesting, that he used literature for, in a sense, for what it should be used for, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have a margin to imagine something which is politically impossible to imagine, right? And, and to live there, uh, including speaking about your injury, which was very difficult yeah. for him. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. I found it profoundly interesting. A quarter of a century ago, I was doing an Arabic course here at Oxford, and one of our texts was the Pesoptimist. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know the first 20 or 30 pages of the book in Arabic quite well, or I did then. But I only approached it as a literary text. And you placed Emil Habibi in his literary as well as political and broader historical context, which I found very um, illuminating and your emphasis was on 1948 the Nakba as the formative experience which colored everything else that he wrote but I remember not very distinctly one line of a dialogue in the book when the old man says to a younger man about the Israelis my son the Israelis are occupiers but this is the nature of occupiers. They are no worse than the British were before them, mm -hmm. and they are no worse than the Ottomans were before them. Mm -hmm. um, this is a rather philosophical 
and charitable attitude towards the Israeli occupation, which doesn't sit in very easily with the experience of the Nakba and the episode with which you quoted mm. of the real violence and inhumanity of the Israeli occupiers. Mm. So I don't recall that sentence. I have to look it up specifically to be able to um, address your question more, more directly. I think there are several... He's fascinated when it comes to enemies. He's fascinated by how much memory they have. They, they remember. It's 2,000 years that they, you know, the, the diaspora, this, this narrative story about the diaspora, the, leaving for 2,000, they have that long memory. You know, how can they, he is interested in this notion of, of memory, wh when you need to remember how. And this notion that you know, if they have the license to remember 2,000 years ago, why doesn't he have a license to remember just 20 years ago? What is it that makes his position deniable and theirs completely not? He's interested in those. He's troubled by those questions. So because he knows, as it were, he, he, because he's surrounded by the culture which he's ultimately critiquing, because he knows it so well, it, he posits it sometimes within the frame of that culture. Um, um, so I think that's one way of thinking about, uh, thinking about this, this question. Um, what strikes me most about the novel is, is the fact that, speaking to his social and historical and political experience, is the fact that it doesn't have Israeli characters that you can sympathize with. Unlike if you take Kanafani, for example, as an example, who makes it his mission to understand the perspective of a Holocaust survivor who ends up occupying a house of a Palestinian in 1948, and not only that, but also, you know, um, in between quotes, inheriting the, his son as well. Let, so, you know, he's deeply interested in, with those ordinary human, everyday motivations and questions. Habib is not there, and then you have to ask yourself, why is he not there? When this is his historical experience of combining with others, of, of, of speaking Hebrew, of being surrounded by Jewish comrades, but why not in the novel? I think the only way is to think about it as that space where the Nakba could be articulated. And if, if Israelis are perpetuators of the Nakba, then there's very little one can think of them outside of that, if, if, if writing for him is dwelling on pain. I can give you the specific quote from... Um, I would love that, yes. Uh, because I used it as the opening sentence in an article I wrote many, many years ago. Um, the debate about 1948, in which I reviewed the main bones of contention between the old historians and the right. new historians. Right. And I start with this quote, so I can give it yeah, to I'd you. Yeah, I'd love to see it, yeah. But I, I want to move, if I may, to uh, your conclusion about the implications of mm. this text and of uh, Emil Habibi more generally for um, Israel's studies. and. You, you mentioned Benny Morris. Yes. Um, Benny Morris uh, um, has ch changed his political views. Hmm. He veered to the extreme right. Yes. But he never went back on his historical research yes. at all. Yes. So everything he's written is still valid. Yes. And the conclusion is that Israel was mainly 
overwhelmingly responsible for the Nakba and for creating the Palestinian refugee problem. But in the past, he used to be a positivist historian and just present the evidence and not draw any conclusions. Whereas after he veered to the extreme right, he started passing political judgments and saying David Ben-Gurion, who was the great expeller in 48, um, that he was a defeatist and that yeah. he made a terrible historical mistake in not expelling the whole lot yes. and allowing 150,000 Palestinians to stay. Well, th that's completely of no interest at all. What is of value is um, Benny Morris's True. historical True. research rather than his political commentary. So um, the, the, the other comment I want to make is about Edward Said, who took the initiative um, in um, a conference that we had here at the Middle East Center uh, on what he wanted the conference to be on the, the, the moral and political consequences of 1948. I don't know whether you were here when these talks took place, mm. but they resulted in a volume mm. that Eugene Rogan and I co-edited on the, um, the War for Palestine, rewriting the history mm -hmm. of um, 1948. And we're all new historians, revisionist historians. Yeah. But at the end, there is an afterword by Edward Said, mm -hmm. which sums up his engagement with the Palestinian issue. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very neat, elegant essay covering his whole trajectory mm -hmm. in relation to um, this issue. Uh, and it may be there, but it may have been in other contexts that he commented on the the value of um, new history on the Nakba, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly the work of the new historians. And he said it, it was useful at three levels. One is that it educated the Israeli public mm -hmm. about their own history and about the Palestinian view of the common history. The other value is that it encouraged Palestinian historians to become more critical of their own leadership mm -hmm. in 1948. And thirdly, he said that um, on the second point, he also said that new history um, gave Palestinians a version of the past which was honest, which was genuine, and which was line, in line with their own experience of what happened, rather than the propaganda mm -hmm. of the victors. And finally, that this kind of openness on both sides uh, could be conducive to mutual understanding and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So this was Edward Said a long time ago, yes. before Oslo, yes. uh, I think. And, um, uh, but it is about the importance of 1948, in both for Israel studies yes. and Palest Palestine totally. studies. I know, I know the, the afterward that he wrote for the book. So my point about Morris is very specific. My point about Morris is not that he didn't change political coloring and that he, he, the, the, the historical writings that he did 
um, are unquestioned, or etc. I wasn't making that argument. I'm just saying that, as an event, if you look at 48, you you could draw a conclusion politically, which he ultimately did, that we needed more of it. Yeah. So there's nothing about the event itself which prevents you from saying we needed more of this yeah. event. So it does, so, but my my wager was that subject to public debate, talking publicly, engaging, learning the history of 1948 in a public context, my wager would be that ordinary people wouldn't respond like Benny Morris. Mm -hmm. And that because there was something very specific about his own form of response after the Second Intifada and his own way of conceiving of the problem of 1948 uh, 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 and imagining continued expulsion in order to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, etc. But my, so I'm not worried about, I'm not questioning at all the historical research and its value. I'm just saying that you could you could take it different ways politically, depending on your own political perspective. But my wager is that for the majority of people, or for a significant number of people, if you allowed public debate about this, their attitudes would change. If if I didn't think that then Israel's position about denying the Nakba, not wanting to discuss it, silencing it totally would be irrational. Why would they do it if, it, if they didn't think that by doing it that they are controlling um, um, attitudes around history, sympathies towards enemies, etc.? Um, that's what I meant. About the, the question of occupation, I, I, I now understand what you mean about Habibi's quote. So Habibi made this reference, but there's something also very distinct, there's something very playful about, you know, occupiers and, you know, my son, this is how they come and go. But there's something very distinct about Israeli occupiers, which make this narrative, which trouble this narrative, that Israeli occupiers came not just as occupiers of land, but also as settlers. They transformed society, they expelled the majority of the population, they made a home at the cost of the people who were there, unlike some of the other occupiers before them. So there's, there's a huge social, socio-political transformation that took place which makes this judgment slightly <laughs> too playful for Habibi in that sense, because the weight of it is, is, is the weight of history is much much more burdensome than than this comment suggests. That there's something distinct about. My grandmother sometimes used to say this, you know, or, or any grandmother. If you talk to them, who, those who remember the Ottoman times, they tell you the Ottomans were here, they left. The English were here, they left. The Israelis are here, one day they will leave. And you tell them, well, but there's something different about the Israelis, right? There's something different about the nature of the society that they created. There's something, they're, not, they're here to stay. You need to be able to, as it were, settle with them, reckon with them, etc. It's, it's not like the other occupations, right? I wish it were, you know, like the Ottomans, or, which wasn't mostly an occupation, or like the British. Sorry. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this talk. I mean, uh, well, not making too much missing too, too much of a family affair, but I still remember you were asking this question to Bonnie Mary. Uh, yes, Bonnie I remember. Himself yes. the Center, so yes, that's right. But I want to ask you uh, instead about the, um, whether this uh, research could actually be taken forward in a comparative way. Because if I think of uh, um, French and uh, Italian communist political leaders who themselves at a sort of like a literary space in which they operated. Mm. I think this may be a worthy way of like bringing the research forward. Because mm. and, and they themselves defended quite ferociously this space from the uh, incursions, uh, quote unquote, uh, of the party. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even wanted to sort of police even this space or 
And they, even if they were like fiercely loyal, I mean, Emilio Sereni, or if they were a bit more yes. Leonardo's, like Peter and Grau, and so on and so forth, but they always made sure that this stayed as a sort of a, um, free space, as yes. you describe it. And I was wondering whether you, you, it's your intention, it's, it's something that you could do to bring this research forward in a, in a comparative way. Yeah, and I would put in the same question, <laughs> The, the Jewish communists, yes, not yes. just you know, not just the monkey members, but also you know, Arab Jews such as yes. uh, you know, some, some know, yes. Yeah. So that that it's a way into, as it were, certain 20th century problems. Right? This problem of of Stalinism, political Stalinism, problem of mm-hmm. of the culture of the communist parties, problem of you know. So there's something around that which is very fertile, and how people who can be extremely loyal politically a certain ideology would would do other things in their own literary work so that you couldn't just say that these are socialist realists you couldn't put them under those labels which are constricting labels and don't define what they are so I, I think that's an incredibly fertile way of thinking about the, that problem especially in Italy in Greece of course uh, is another example um, so absolutely that so there's and what and my the intention of thinking about Habibi in a sense through that geopolitical context, is to be able to say that there's only so much that this generation can weigh, can can bear as weight, that their policies were essentially derivative policies that were forced on them and that they had to uphold on some level, that you should think about, even today, the history of the Communist Party in Israel as a Stalinist formation loyal to the Soviet Union and Soviet foreign policy. So that gives you very little margin for maneuver politically. Um, so on some level you can say, okay, you can blame them for upholding those positions because ultimately they were agents that were advocating those, uh, those positions. But on another level you can say, you know, either you stay in the party or you leave. And this was his position. Now, at the end of his life, Habibi was very troubled by the notion that he understood political responsibility as utter and complete repression, right? Um, so he was very troubled by, by the consequences of, of of very youthful, right? He was 24 at the time. Yeah, youthful decisions. We have all done things at the age of 24, which we, you know, so you could see the burden of that, right? But I think that's, and that's what I meant, and that's why I, I like your question, because I want that generation to be understood in that context of, of the Cold War, because that's how they framed their own, not only political um, work contribution, but also their own sense of culture. So they would read, so if you look at Ittihad, he was deeply in touch with events from the Third World, Soviet literature, developments by writings by Gorky, Chekhov. You know, they belong to that kind of milieu. All the communists did, and that that gives you something very compelling. Um, and that's on some level, because of the nature of the 20th century, uh, like a universal, a universal issue. Yes, the question of ignorance and denial mm. connected, but they can be distinct. I know nothing about it. And you mentioned Israeli studies yes. associated with this kind of level of education. Mm. Are you suggesting that in the school curriculum there isn't Palestinian stories being told about 1948? In history it couldn't be ignored. In geography it's difficult. And in literature it doesn't it appear there. Don't Israeli kids grow up with the, with the story of 1948? The Palestinian story? It used to be optional. Yeah. But, but but it's an option which is not taken. 
not picked up. So it's not yeah. part of it's hard. It's, it's ignorance and not denial. It's not the opportunity to digest this. So the state denies it. Right? So there's an official state line. Yes. Right? Um, now, the question of denial in Israel is a very complicated question. So one you can say about Israeli society that Israeli society doesn't do things politically because it simply doesn't know. Right? And that if Israeli society knew, let's say, give you more, a more curtailed example, if it knew what happens in the West Bank and Gaza, it would behave differently. Again, because it's a settler colony, settler colonists are very anxious, very fearful. It's hard to make that argument in that, in that sense. It's also hard because Israeli society serves in the West Bank and Gaza. The army is a conscription army, so they know. There's no question of ignorance. But Israelis, it's hard to argue that Israelis do not know the facts about what's happening around them. Do they know the fact? That's one question. Right? So a question of colonization, occupation, what's happening in Gaza, etc. It's hard to argue that they don't know how it's uh, manipulated ideologically, how it's what, what narrative it's uh, given by the media. That's another set of questions we can think about. The more specific question is, do they know about the Nakba? I think that's a hard claim to make. I think they, especially this generation, all the generations who participated in the Nakba, in the war, no, of course they know. They don't speak openly. They don't want to speak. These things are silenced because they don't, because the culture, the political culture may, uh, may have changed. They're worried about how the new generation will respond to it. It's, they don't talk about those things. So there is, I think there is a problem of, of public knowledge about 1948 being openly discussed and debated. I think, I think, and I think ending that denial, it is a denialism about this question, is, is key to beginning to understand the story about Israel, right? which the Israeli public is always not told. The Israeli public's conception about Israel is Israel is this small country, plucky little country, that is, they're barely surviving on the edge of the Middle East, and all the Arabs around them want to throw them into the sea, and that's why we need to be active, and the sword shall ne never lie, because we need to continue. That's the story they're told. So th the fear, terrorizing in a sense, uh, the Israeli population into certain political positions, is active all, this, all the time by the Israeli state. So if you tell the story of 48, right, and you reckon with that history, the Israelis would be able to see how they are in fact belong in, in a history of perpetrators. Right, that they are not the victims that they think they are. In fact, they were extremely powerful in 1948. Right? And they committed all those crimes, massacres, expulsions, etc. So I, this is, there's no guarantees in this. Right? It depends on the public debate. It depends on the nature of political uh, groups mobilizing around this, etc. But to have it certainly more publicly acknowledged and debated, I, one, it's an elementary democratic demand. And two, because I'm not afraid of democracy, they are. I want to debate those events publicly with them. Now, they might win at the end of it. I doubt it, right? But I want it open. Silencing it doesn't help anyone. Silencing it turns it into a completely different event. Um, so there is an element of ignorance when it comes to 48, but there's also an element of state denial and elite denial. So the moment that Avi molded and shaped the, the, new, the, the new historian's moment, the moment of 
you like, uh, during the Oslo years when Israel publicly was more open about questions of 1948, it's completely closed now. And it's closed because the state decided that it, 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 it's politically, maybe Avi, you can tell us more about this. It's politically like difficult to, to control, right? Um, I would like to add yeah, uh, please. these comments. In answer to your question, uh, I went to school in Israel and we did study 1948 that the term the Nakba was never mentioned. I only knew it as uh, the War of Independence. And it was the Zionist narrative that you have just summarized about what happened in 1948. Um, and as far as the refugee problem is concerned, what we were taught at school is that um, the Arabs attacked us um, and um, we managed to survive. It was a miracle uh, and we didn't harm anyone, but the Arab leaders told the people to get out of the way, to make way for the invading Arab armies. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Israel is um, completely innocent of any misdeeds mm -hmm. in 1948. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But after Oslo, there was the Oslo era of openness mm -hmm. in Israeli society and there was the Rabin government, and he had a very liberal minister of education, Yossi Sarid, and he ordered the rewriting of history textbooks for secondary schools to incorporate some of the findings of the new research, and especially the findings of Benny Morris. Uh, so uh, that new research had some impact on the teaching of history about 1948, but it didn't amount to just jettisoning just, just the old narrative, mm -hmm. but it was more subtle. The textbook said, imagine yourself as a boy or a girl in an Arab village in the middle of the war uh, and having to flee because of the war. So it didn't allocate responsibility to Israel, mm -hmm. but at least it opened up mm. questions and made people think about what it would have been like to have been a Palestinian boy uh, or girl. Uh, so that was a, um, a move towards greater openness, greater honesty, and uh, educating the public about what actually happened mm -hmm. in that year. But then there was the second intifada, the Likud came back to power. Mm -hmm. There was a really um, 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 Limorni Nat was the uh, education minister. Uh, she was a, a real hardline nationalist and she ordered the rewriting of the history <laughs> books and she restored the old Zionist narrative mm -hmm. about the refugee problem and everything else. And she also wrote an article in, in the Jerusalem Post uh, in which she talked about the Oslo criminals. Mm -hmm. The Oslo criminals were Rabin, Peres, Yossi Bailin, the democratically elected um, Israeli government which signed a peace accord with the Palestinians. For her, they were criminals. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a new discourse around 48. Avi probably knows more, more about this. 
than I do, but I've been picking this up in the press. The, the new way of talking about 1948 is to say that the Palestinians are self-victimizing. They are, they, are, they, committing, they are committing their own Nakba by holding on to the right of return, mm -hmm. by perpetuating their own misery, etc. So rather than, so you, you turn, again, so you, again you blame the victims for something that you did to them. So that, there's this discourse around self-victimization. So you should you know, forget about the past, you should reconcile with the past, enough of those things, you should disband the UNRWA, right? Mm -hmm. That it, it, it educates uh, the refugees, uh, etc., supports them, protects them, etc. You should just give up on the idea that you're refugees, there's no, nowhere to return to, you don't have that political right, etc. Get over it. Mm -hmm. And that new discourse is a discourse of, of blame. So the right of return is described not just not as a form of justice towards people that you committed crimes against, but the right of return is described as a war against Israel. That discourse around Gaza, they're marching to, to return to Israel and take over Israel. It's completely you know, terror-inducing fear in its own population about what the Palestinians want to do. So again, that's the peculiarity of, of Israeli political culture, um, that it's let's, seeped in that language. Let's take last question. Can we come back to that? Um, a comment you made that, as I understand it, that the colonialism, if we're going to use that word, is unique yes. to Israel. No. To use that. Yes. Because it's a different kind of colonialism. Yes. That um, the here's to stay. And the characteristic of um, colonies as they went through, the, yes. through history, once the colonial power left, it left a society which was strong but a political administration that was very, very weak. And we've got, as I understand it, something happening, an evolutionary process going on that, that comes out in the novels and so on, that you, you have a build-up to 1948, and then you have, how do we deal with this in terms of use of history, what really happened? Well, nobody knows what really happened. We have a memory of what happens, and the memory is essential to my identity. Mm. My, my, my own personal yeah. memory of my, my own life yeah. is, is the kind of who I am. Yes. And it's, it's these kind of conflicts that they're resolving. Perhaps we've got a few more generations to go, but there's something happening, mm. and especially in literature and drama and poetry, where fantasy and imagination can deal with that which is not what happened, not the reality, mm. but the dream, the hope, the anticipation mm -hmm. of what could be. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so... <laughs> So was there a question? <laughs> but it's not a question. It's the things that are going around my head as I'm listening to the other questions. Maybe the question of what do you think the potential for Palestinian yeah, literature okay. is. Yeah. And, and something about the, the form of colonization. So the form of colonization, okay, Israel doesn't have a mother country it came from. And, and there's always an, an argument that's used to say that, you know, Israel, then, then Israel is not a settler colony. Well, you know, well, it's a new kind of settler colony, and here, here it is. It functions like a settler colony, uh, and there are also immigrants, and there are also Holocaust survivors, and there are also settlers. So there's something very distinct about Israel, mm -hmm. and to be able to understand the specificity of for the Palestinian question is to be able to understand the, the distinct nature of, of the founding of Israel, the notion that Israel built itself around 
victim state and the notion that you know Jews were persecuted, anti-Semitic persecution around the world uh, for generation for for years to come before that. So that you know. That is the specificity of the Palestinian group. We're not dealing with whites and blacks in oh, South Africa, yeah, yeah. which is much easier, but we are dealing with, with a population, with a state that claims, and rightly so, with a, with a population that was persecuted in Europe, suffered the Holocaust, etc. So that's part of the problem. So at the same time, the practices are colonial, and at the same time, one's human sympathies are, are with victims, and, and Jews were victims in Europe uh, of persecution, Holocaust, etc. So it, it, it has yeah. its own yeah. unique, you know, over-determined <laughs> nature as, as a conflict. But the, the, the notion that you have a settler population that is there doesn't necessarily mean that you need a state which is a settler colonial state. No. The, the state can be configured differently, okay. yeah. where, it, where, where it can be, for example, one elementary thing which would make Israel a, a democratic state. They wanted a state like England was a state. Well, in reality, Israel is Israel not like England. State. No, no, it's not like England yeah. is a state. I, England is, a, Britain is a state for all citizens. Israel is not. Yeah. Israel is a state for all Jews. Yeah. Um, and there's something about that, making Israel consistent with elementary democratic uh, norms, which would change that situation where you have the colonial privileges of anybody who's a Jew from around the world being able to claim citizens, while Palestinian refugees who were, who were dispossessed as a result of the creation of Israel, yeah. cannot return. So there's something, so there's, there, are, there are ways of dealing with the nature of that history and the legacy and making it more consistent with elementary political demands, which are necessary, I think, politically in Israel. This has nothing to do with moving the settler population, putting it somewhere, I'm not talking about West Bank and Gaza, I'm talking about Israel proper, uh, etc. That All these things can be configured with the two populations existing there in Israel. It doesn't, there's no mother country to leave back to. There is no Algeria option in Israel-Palestine. There is only the option that we, the Palestinians and the Israelis are there forever. And they need to find a way to figure out how to live with each other without one side oppressing the other. Yeah. Uh, so the current oppression is the Israeli side, but also you want to guarantee in the future that in an area which is majority Arab and majority Muslim, you do not have a situation where minorities are persecuted. So I'm all for what the spirit of what you're describing. Does literature play play a role in preparing for that? You know, yes, but you know, literature is also the effects of literature are, you know, I don't want to dump on my literary <laughs> colleagues here, you know. But the effects of literature are, are you know, are it cannot save the world. Ultimately, political organization can save the world. And you need, you need organizations that struggle for values that are uh, yeah. consistent with universal... people to reflect yes. in a way other than the political, yes. the state of the... Totally. Yeah. But I think there's something more interesting. So if you look at Israeli state level, it's a, it's a yeah. horrifying story. Right? You look at Israel, what it does every day in Gaza, the killings, mm. you know, sniping people, armless, uh, um, defenseless uh, civilian population being ticked off by highly trained uh, soldiers. You know, it's a, on a state level, it's horrifying. But on, on a more mass level, on a popular level, there are more questions. Israelis, the Israelis I talk to, they have questions about how long is this going to be sustained for how long can we live like this? It's a, it's a very intrusive state, Israeli state. Forget about Palestinian society. It's intrusive on Israeli society. The demands it makes of Israelis are very high for any state to make. It's constant giving time away, going, going off to uh, occupy, to kill. You're asked to kill all the time in the name of the state. So I think there is a sense of, you know, the Israeli state tries to work against it, but there's a sense of tiredness from the conflict, genuine tiredness. And that opens questions. Yeah. 
questions about, I bumped into somebody on, on an airplane going back home. And he told me, you know, they, on their own, they live on, on a Moshav, older generation, he's in his early 60s, and they started a, a, a Nakba study group where he wanted to know about the villages around him that were... Dis so all these things, you can't, you know, these things are all, are all happening in Israel, right? That you cannot, that if you only look at the state level, you don't see. Oh, no. Hopefully they will amount to something politically. They haven't yet, but they're there, they're there and they exist. Does literature play a role in opening up spaces like that? Yes, of course it does. And you have these um, film, um, um, what do you call it, um, prizes, um, exhibitions of, of films that are made in conjunction, Israelis and Palestinians. Yes. Film festivals. Film festivals. Yeah. Film festivals yeah. And then you have also victims of, yeah. from both sides coming yeah. together, yeah. families. I th yeah. I, that's a very significant development yeah. in the last, under impossible circumstances yeah. where Palestinian families whose their members died as a result of Israeli accent and Israeli families who yeah. remember they come together Brown. they speak about their joint pain they speak yeah. about yeah. their suffering they regardless of political coloring that's on a more popular level there are these things but the situation is extremely difficult and much worse than it was before sure. uh, you know nobody can deny that absolutely yes so I think we should close here I must note that this fascinating discussion that you oversaw, thank you, S which deals with the pessoptimist title, ended up in what I would say a democratically optimist tone, <laughs> which being the, I guess, the pessimist in this room, I'm going to exercise real <laughs> strength not to comment on. And I want to thank you again for coming. I want you uh, all uh, for being. And um, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>